You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, I want to invite you once again to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30, and for those that are interested, I'm going to post our um, slideshow notes in our Google Drive folder that is shared. Um, You can access that through our bulletin and follow along with those notes. You can do that in the service. You can do that at a later time as well. Um, So let me get those posted real quick for you, and then we will jump right into our text this morning in Genesis chapter 30. We've already taken the chance to read through that, so if you're listening uh, to this sermon at a later time on a podcast, then I would encourage you to read through uh, Genesis chapter 30. Uh, before listening to the sermon. It's a lengthy chapter um, full of a lot of good content uh, once you spend some time really meditating and studying upon that. So, All right, we, um, we really be- introduced uh, some of the chapter last week. The end of chapter 29 really should probably be included in chapter 30 because it sets the stage for a lot of the tension that's experienced um, Chapter 29, we saw the switcheroo with Leah and Rachel. Jacob falls in love with Rachel once he arrives back in Haran, wants to marry Rachel, works seven years to marry Rachel. His uncle Laban tricks him, switches uh, on the wedding night, gives him Leah. He then gets to marry Rachel, but has to work an additional seven years after they get married to kind of pay off um, that gift from Laban. Um, And then Leah's very fruitful. God shows favor to her. Um, Bible tells us that Jacob clearly loved Rachel more than Leah, and God shows favor to her in light of the fact that she's in a marriage where her husband's not uh, functioning the way that he should, and so he makes her very fruitful, and she begins to have children, and that kind of sets the stage for uh, the tension that we see in chapter 30. Last week, we really emphasized the fact that for Christians, we should recognize that we're not going to always experience, uh, or that we will always experience disappointment if we expect life to always go the way we planned it and if we expect the things of this world to bring us ultimate satisfaction. So last week, things do not play out the way Jacob anticipated, right? He works, he plans on marrying Rachel, starting his life, maybe going back home as soon as he marries Rachel. He's worked seven years for his uncle. Esau's anger's probably died down a little bit. That's not how it plays out. He gets stuck um, with Leah, doesn't love Leah, not attracted to Leah, doesn't want to be married to Leah, gets to marry Rachel, but has to work an additional seven years, that extends his stay, does not play out the way that he wants it to. Um, And he certainly doesn't find satisfaction in marrying Rachel because he gets stuck with Leah, and then the tension exists there. And so we talked last week about how um, we'll always find disappointment the next morning, like he does waking up next to Leah, if we put our hope and trust in anything this world has to offer whether it's a relationship, whether it's a career, anything this world offers, we will always find disappointment. We will always, as the text says, wake up and behold, it's Leah. It's not what we anticipated. There's a letdown. Um, And so we talked about how we uh, find trust or we find hope and trusting in God's good provision for us. We talked about not overvaluing things in this life. Um, We talked about being prepared for life to not always go the way we want it to and trusting that God is still working it out for good regardless. That brings us to chapter 30 today, 
where this tension in this family, Jacob has um, married Leah and Rachel, and there's some tension that ensues because of that. And so today's sermon title, Insecurity Wars, um, because we're going to see both Leah and Rachel's insecurity. We're going to see some insecurity from Laban as well towards the end of the chapter. Um, So a lot of uh, insecurity springs out in this chapter, and I think it has a lot to say to us today. Our summary sentence for today, for those that are keeping notes, both our adults and kids, and for our parents, I would encourage you to use um, our kids' notes each week as talking points for your children throughout the upcoming week. Um, I try to give you some material that you can go back and reinforce with your kids and and talk through with your kids and um, allow them to hopefully retain some of the things that we're talking about here on Sunday mornings um, with our kids being in our services for the time being right now. Uh, The summary sentence says, Christians must prepare to trust God rather than respond with envy and strife when he chooses to dispense his blessings in various degrees and forms to us and those around us. Okay, so Christians have to prepare. And it's necessary that we think through this before it happens. We have to prepare to trust God rather than respond with envy and strife because what we're gonna find in all of our lives is that God dispenses his blessing to different degrees and in different forms to us and people around us. For our kids, we need to be okay if God blesses others differently than he blesses us. All right, that's what it really boils down to. God blesses us and he blesses us equally from a spiritual standpoint, right? Ephesians 1, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. So nobody in here has to worry that uh, the person sitting next to them gets better spiritual blessings than they do. Okay? We all get equal spiritual blessings. We all inherit the same spiritual blessings. But from a daily standpoint, from a material standpoint, from a circumstantial standpoint, we experience God's blessings differently, right? Couples in our church have more kids than other, than other couples, right? People in our church live in bigger houses than other people in, in our church, right? We've got more cars than other people in our church. God dispenses blessings. People have different salaries within our church, right? We don't all function. We don't all go to the same job. We don't all make the same amount of money. We don't all give the same amount to this church, right? Uh, God dispenses his blessings differently. And if we're not careful, we go into life, we go into our week, and we become envious of how God is blessing somebody else and how he's not, from our perception, blessing us in the same way. And we fail to trust God. We fail to be content with how he's blessing us. We're going to see how God was blessing Leah and Rachel, and they minimize those blessings, and they puff up the blessings of the other person that they're looking at. They want what the other person has. They fail to see what God has already blessed them with. They don't realize that each other wants what the other has, right? And they're just fighting against each other. They're not content, and they don't see that God is blessing both just differently, for our kids, this is, this is equally true for you. I remember growing up, um, I loved Christmas and birthdays, but the family that I grew up in uh, didn't have as much money as some of the other friends that I had. And I remember, uh, I remember very vividly walking into Fayette Baptist Tabernacle in Fayetteville, Georgia, and wanting to show off my brand new shoes that I got for Christmas or birthday. And I remember two other boys downplaying the value of my shoes because they knew what store they came from and they knew what stores their shoes came from. I don't know why I remember this, but I remember it 
very vividly. I could probably take you to the exact pew that we were on when I said, hey, look at my new shoes. These are awesome. And they were like, no, they're not. They're not awesome. They don't come from the same store we got our shoes. Um, so this is, this is equally true for our kids, right? Like our kids have to embrace this message that we've got to be okay, that God is going to bless us differently than he's gonna bless others. Um, and we've gotta be content and we've gotta trust in his goodness towards our family, towards us individually, and not compare ourselves to how God is working in the life of someone else or in the family of someone else, all right? And so we're gonna see this theme, we're gonna unpack this theme throughout this whole chapter, that as Christians, we've got to trust God. We've got to understand that he blesses people differently and we've gotta be okay with that. We've gotta be content with what he's doing in our life and not compare ourselves and strive for the same type of blessings that others are receiving, okay? Um, So let's start by looking at trusting God with our human relationships, okay? So this chapter is kind of broken up into um, contentment and identity and satisfaction that's geared towards human relationships, and then towards the back end of the chapter, it's geared towards material possessions. So we're gonna start by looking at trusting God with our human relationships, There's some uh, ingredients here that I want to draw out for you. Again, we've already read the text, um, so there's some ingredients that I want to draw out from you that we've already read about that really lead to what is essentially a big baby war. Um, I mean, it's easy to read this chapter and think that these babies are just popping out in less than nine months, right? Because it just seems like rapid fire, like I'm going to have a kid, and then I'm going to have a kid, and then I'm going to have another kid, and then you're going to have a kid for me, and then this person's having a kid. You miss the fact that sometimes these people are probably pregnant at the same time um, and that it does take nine months for them to have a child. And so this is kind of stretched out over years um, because it seems very rapid fire here. But there's some ingredients that uh, lead to these baby wars. Uh, Both Rachel and Leah use the births of their children and their surrogate children as an opportunity to put their feelings into words as they celebrate, gloat, and pout over how God chooses to bless. So you read this chapter, and what you have is both Rachel and Leah battling against each other, striving for victory over each other. And at some point, I think it really becomes more about winning versus possessing, right? Leah wants the husband to love her, and Rachel wants children. And then it really almost becomes a, I just want to beat you, right? Like I want to have more kids than you. And, And it's not really about the kids anymore. It's just about me outdoing you. But both Rachel and Leah used these births of their children. And what a, what a sad situation for these kids to be born into, right? Like you've got kids that are being born to women and then they're taken from their real mom and given to this other woman who's uh, becoming their mom because this was a surrogate mom for them. Um, they used the births of these children to put into uh, to words how they're feeling. And we're going to see, you see celebration, you see gloating, you see pouting, and it's all tied to how God's choosing to bless. And you've got people who aren't content with what God's doing in their life. You've got people that want God to do what he's doing in other people's lives. They fail to celebrate God's goodness in their own life. They pout when they see God doing something in the life of somebody else. And it's certainly not how we're to operate as believers. Some of the uh, ingredients that we see here, first of all, you've got Leah, who one commentator described as frustrated but fruitful, right? She's frustrated that her husband doesn't love her, but she's extremely fruitful in her womb, right? Um, she sees her identity in her husband's love. So everything for Leah is obtaining her husband, 
a male figure in her life, she wants him to love her, right? So everything's about that. Her identity's completely wrapped up in this. Her desire to have children isn't, from the text, motivated for a desire to nurture and to grow and to develop kids. It's about trying to give her husband something that will solicit his love back to her. So for her, it's all tied up in a man loving her. That's where her identity rests. For Rachel, okay, for Rachel, commentator calls her beautiful but barren, right? Like she's got all the physical attributes. She's got all the looks. She's the attractive one, right? Leah's not very attractive, um, but she can have babies and she can have babies like crazy apparently. Rachel is the one that Jacob wants to be with. He's the one that he wants to have, or she's the one that he wants to have babies with and she can't have babies, right? She's barren. So she's got all the, the physical attributes, the physical looks that, that uh, our culture would say are important. She can't have children. Leah doesn't have those things, but she can have kids. Both of them see their identity in relationships. Leah, my identity is wrapped up in my husband and whether he loves me or not. For Rachel, my identity is wrapped up in my ability to have children, right? I don't care about my good looks anymore. She really gets to a point where she doesn't care that her husband loves her specially, right? Like she's the favored wife. Leah, unwelcomed into the relationship, but they're kind of stuck with her. These other two ladies, Jacob willingly brings them into the family, right? Like this isn't him being tricked. He doesn't think he's, he's, he's going to, to lay down with his wife and then wakes up next to Bilhah or Zilpah, right? He doesn't, he doesn't get duped into waking up to a, a wrong woman on these two. He willingly says, all right, honey, we'll, we'll welcome this one into the relationship as well. Okay, honey, we'll welcome this one into the relationship as well. And now he's got four women that he's dealing with. Rachel, it's all about children for her. It's all about children for her. So Leah, it's all about her husband. Rachel, it's all about her children. Kind of going back to chapter 29, Leah has stolen Rachel's husband by posing as her. Um, she gets to enjoy him first as a husband. So that certainly creates some tension for Rachel. Rachel experiences barrenness with the pressures of being the lead wife. Um, while she's not married first to Jacob, she does seem to kind of have the preeminence in the relationship. She seems to be the lead wife. In fact, the whole transaction that takes place with these mandrakes, which we'll talk about in, about, talk about in a little bit, the fact that Leah even has to negotiate to be with Jacob uh, leads most commentators to believe that Rachel is the scheduler for who gets to sleep with the husband on any given night. So she's kind of the lead wife. Like she's the, she's the matriarch of the family. Um, and that's a lot of pressure because remember, there's all these blessings that are supposed to come from Jacob, right? He's the, he's the, son, he's the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. There's supposed to be numerous offspring, right? Sands of the seashore, stars in the sky. It's supposed to be a lot of kids. And here she is not able to have kids, right? So there's a lot of insecurity that Rachel's dealing with. She's the lead wife and she can't have children. And she's supposed to be able to. Um, Leah creates some false expectations that her husband will love her if she bears him sons. So Leah keeps falling into this trap. If I'll have another son, my, my, my husband will love me. And so she keeps placing these expectations on her husband. Love me if I do this. Love me if I do this. And each time she does it, her expectations fail to be met. Right? This, is a, this is a lose-lose situation for Jacob. He can't possibly meet these cravings and desires and needs that she has. He's got more women than he can handle, right? And, and, he, and he can't satisfy all of them. 
And, and you've got Leah who continues to place these unhealthy expectations on her husband. Love me, love me, love me. I'll do whatever it takes. Rachel perceives a decrease in her own personal value based on her sister's success. Again, the love of Jacob's not enough for her anymore. She may start to wonder, am I gonna lose my position of being the favored wife as these other women continue to have children and I'm incapable of doing so? My value is decreasing. I'm not capable of living up to what Leah is doing. I'm not capable of being that type of wife for my husband. Her value, again, is tied up in her ability to have children. Both turn to outside help to increase their success. So you've got this situation where Reuben, who most commentators say is between four years old and maybe seven years old, somehow he's wandering around in the field and finds this rare fruit. Um, this mandrake fruit that is supposed to have um, kind of a love potion type effect. That was kind of the superstition about it, that that this fruit would elicit desires in your husband for you or desires in 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 another man for you. Um, And it would also increase your fertility. So it was viewed as 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 a drug at that time, basically, to take to help your ability to have kids. Now, remember from the text that we've already read, Leah very fruitful, and then she kind of goes barren too. And that may be due to her not being on the schedule to be with her husband. Um, If Rachel's kind of setting the schedule, again, she's saying, hey, let me have my husband. I'll trade you mandrakes to to be with my husband. Uh, It may be that she's not making the, the schedule frequently. And so her barrenness may be due to infrequency with her husband, but she's not having kids anymore. So she wants the mandrakes to either make Jacob want to get her on the schedule um, or if she is barren, to increase her fertility once again. Rachel, who's yet to have kids, but certainly factors herself into the schedule frequently, realizes me being on the schedule a lot is not producing children, so the mandrakes may help. And so there's this negotiation that takes place where both of them are saying, hey, the mandrakes are the answer. I can buy time with my husband. Rachel says I can eat fertility and both of them see it as a way to have kids once again. Rachel, for the first time, Leah says, this gets me back on the schedule, and I can have kids, and we see that she does have kids um, by coming back to her husband. Um, You've got one sister desperate for love, one sister desperate for children. Again, like I said, at some point, it becomes more about winning than possessing. It's messy. This is a messy chapter, right? And like I said, it's it's polygamous because you've got a man married to multiple women, We're not dealing with that here in our church. So what relevance does this have today to us? And I want to draw some insight out for you here for just a minute. First of all, Christians must remember two things. For our adults, all human relationships fail in ways that Christ succeeds. For our kids, our relationship with Jesus is the best relationship we can have. All human relationships fail in ways that Christ succeeds. Remember when Jesus comes to the woman at the well and he talks about offering her water that no longer leaves you thirsty? Right? He says, I, I can offer you something that you've yet to find in a human relationship. He says, you've, you've been with multiple men. You've had multiple husbands. You're with a guy right now that's not your husband and you're thirsty, right? And that conversation shifts from, from a material, physical understanding to a spiritual. And he says, you're thirsty. You're craving fulfillment that you're never going to find in a human relationship. 
He says, I'm offering you living water, water that you can drink from and you're no longer thirsty. Our spouses and our children will always leave us thirsty if that's the well we're trying to drink from. What do I mean by that? We've got people in our church who are single that desire to be married, right? It's a godly desire. It's a, it's a biblical desire. It's a, it's a created desire. In all my years of ministry, I've only had one conversation with one individual uh, where the conversation shifted towards maybe that person was called to singleness. One time. That means everybody in here, for the most part, falls into the category, if you're single, a desire to be married, if you've never been married before. A desire to be married. It's a biblical desire. It's a created desire. It's a good desire. But if we're not careful, we can easily make that desire something that we believe will quench a thirst that it can never quench. Right, we can build up this, this huge expectation that once I get married, then my life begins. Then I get to do the things that, that God's wanting me to do. Remember, we talked a year and a half ago now when we did our sermon on singleness, that really the time to do the big things for God is in your single years, right? That, that we can maximize our single years because Paul talks about the, the benefit of being single, right? That there's, there's more time that can be committed to the kingdom you don't have the responsibilities of caring for a family. But I think too oftentimes in our minds, we believe once I get married, then life begins, right? And then once you get married, the next question that you get asked from by everybody is, when are you gonna have kids, right? Like it's not okay to just be married. You gotta start having kids. And it can create some unhealthy desires in our married couples, especially for those that get into the relationship and want kids and seemingly can't have kids, right? And then the expectation begins to grow. Oh, I can't have kids? Well, we're gonna really work at trying to have kids. And it becomes this unhealthy expectation that if we can just break through this barrier, then we'll get to drink from that well and we'll be satisfied as a married couple because we'll have kids finally, right? It could be buying a house. You get married and, and you have kids. Okay, now when, you, when are you gonna move out of the apartment? You can't raise a kid in an apartment. When are you gonna buy a house? And, and we start to create these wells that are meant to satisfy. And every time we take that next step, we realize this doesn't satisfy right? Christ succeeds in ways that human relationships fail. Human relationships are based on a love that may not endure, okay? This is what I mean by human relationships fail in ways that Christ succeeds. Human relationships are based on a love that may not endure. We've got people in this room that have had spouses walk out on them, they stood before people, they stood before some type of officiating officer and made commitments to each other. And at some point in their relationship, the love stopped and the spouse said, I'm out, right? That they were banking on this individual loving them till death do us part. And that stopped. That stopped. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. And, and it's, it's certainly due to the fact that we're, we're sinful, Right? We're born into sin. And until Jesus comes back, there's going to be consistent messiness. Remember last week we said, hey, read this story and see the messiness and be encouraged that God uses messy families and messy relationships and messy marriages and messy parents for his glory. I was thinking, I was thinking this morning, I said, some of my family members are, are messy. And sometimes I can be judgmental towards them. And I got to thinking, 
my messy family members at times are a lot more holy than what I'm reading about with Jacob and his family, right? And this is the patriarch that the Messiah comes from. This is the chosen line, and this is the messiness that we're dealing with. So nobody needs to get discouraged or feel guilty right now in talking about this because God uses messy people and God uses messy relationships and God uses messy families to, to, for his glory, okay? But human relationships fail because love doesn't always endure in marriages, right? I can tell Lauren is, until I'm blue in the face that I will love her until we die. But Lauren is smart enough to know and she's got friends and family where that hasn't been the case. And so there's still, there's still this possibility that I'll walk away from our, our marriage, and that's not true, Lauren. I'm, not, I'm never going to walk away from our marriage. But right, that possibility still exists, right? The enemy, sin, creeps at my door. Sin knocks at my door. And if I don't continue to fight sin, and if I don't continue to take measures in my life to avoid other women, I'm not above the possibility of being susceptible to temptation and ruining my family. That's not going to happen, okay? Like, don't, don't worry. Right? Human relationships can fail, So if we bank everything on a spouse loving us until Jesus comes back, the likelihood of that well drying up is possible. But you know what's great about how Christ succeeds in ways that our spouses don't? Is that the Bible tells us that he loved us when we were his enemies, right? I loved Lauren at her best, right? Like I loved her at a Christian camp setting where she was getting up early every morning to have her devotions and she's discipling other girls and I see her praying constantly. I loved her at her, but I said, that's the woman I'm gonna marry, right? Like, like she is super spiritual. Um, she wants Jesus more than anything. Like I loved her at her best, right? Told you last week, at some point in your relationship, you wake up and you say, thought I married Rachel and I'm waking up next to Leah. That happens to all of us, right? And, and the sooner we come to grips with that, the better. And I love the fact that God has called me to love a woman that's not perfect. I'm thankful that God uses her to sanctify me because she certainly didn't wake up to the Jacob that she thought, right? Like we can flip that around too. God's using her to sanctify me. I pray that God's using me to sanctify her. But what's great about Christ as our our groom, right? We place ourselves in the position of bride because that's what Jesus says is that marriage pictures Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride, is that he loved us at our worst, which means he's never gonna walk away from us because we're only getting better, right? He takes us, he starts a work in us, he finishes the work, right? So Jesus doesn't have any reason to say, you know what, I'm done with this, I'm done with you, I found somebody better. Because he chose us when we were at our worst and he started the work and he finishes the work. So all human relationships fail in ways that Christ succeeds because his love continues to endure. His love's not in question. Human relationships are based on a presence that may not continue. So human relationships are based on a love that may not endure, right? So if you bank everything on a spouse, those that are single, hoping that a spouse comes along, those that are married who already have a spouse, if you're banking everything on that spouse loving you until the end of time, that well may dry up. But secondly, human relationships are based on a presence that may not continue or ever exist. Right? Spouses spouses leave us, but spouses pass away too. Kids come into our life, but we're not promised that we will see them throughout our life. We've had people in our church right here that have experienced the loss of kids. 
and some that have experienced it in a way that's far more difficult through miscarriages. You know, the reason that's more difficult is because not everybody's mindful of the grief that continues because we never knew their child, right? It's one thing when you, when you have a friend that loses a child that was here and you played with them and you held them and you talked to them and you, you feel that grief longer. We've had, we've had families in our church that have experienced miscarriages and, and we forget about it far more quickly than they do. Right? Human relationships are built. They're built on the presence of a relationship that may not continue or may not ever exist. Right? We have some couples in our church that, that don't have kids and may never have kids and may want kids desperately. And if that's the well, they never get to drink from it right? Because it may never exist. And the encouragement, the way that Christ succeeds is that he promises his disciples, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm not going anywhere, right? Jesus has already died and he's already rose again. So we don't have to worry about death separating us from Jesus. He's omnipresent, so he's everywhere. And we have his special presence in our life. Jesus is better than any human relationship. He's better than any spouse. He's better than any child because he's not going anywhere. We don't have to worry about separation from him. And he will always love us. Not just until the end of this world, but for all eternity, right? And that's a relationship between our spouse that changes in eternity, right? We get to be with our spouse for eternity, but not in the same capacity for eternity. Our relationship with Jesus only gets deeper. Only gets deeper. The intimacy only increases as we move into eternity. All human relationships fail in ways that Christ succeeds. Number two, all human relationships are gifts to be enjoyed, but not idolized. All human relationships are gifts to be enjoyed, but not idolized. For our kids, all of our other relationships are gifts. Right? They're, they're, they're bonuses. Right, once I have Jesus, everything else that comes after that is just extra. It's just icing on the cake. If God chooses to give me a spouse, wonderful. That's just extra. If God chooses to take my spouse, there's going to be grief and sorrow. But at the end of the day, I still have the best relationship. Right? Like I don't lose Jesus. There's some gifts that are hard to lose when they're taken back. Right? God may take our spouse home. God may take a child home. And there's a time of grieving and there's a time of sorrow, but on the other side of that, we still have Jesus, right? Imagine losing Jesus and on the other side, only having a spouse or only having a child that may stop loving us, who may also pass away and and separate from us, right? Like we get the best relationship, the one that doesn't stop loving us, the one that never leaves us. We get to enjoy gifts on top of that. And some of us get to enjoy some gifts that others don't get to enjoy. And that goes back to where we find trust and contentment in God's goodness, that he dispenses his goodness to some, to different degrees, different forms than he does to others. And we work towards contentment. We fight for contentment in that area. What we find in this text is that God controls the wombs and he dispenses life when and where he chooses for as long as he chooses, right? Like, You see these women, and they're trying to do everything they can, but time and time again, you see God doing it. God's the one that's responsible. In fact, Jacob responds to to Rachel and says, "Um, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Right? You skip down to 
when Rachel finally gets a kid, it says, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. God controls the wombs. He's the one that dispenses life when and where he chooses. And he does it for as long as he chooses. Right? Like God gives life. He gives some of us children. He gives some of us multiple children. And then at times he takes that life back. He gives it to us for as long as he chooses, and then he, he calls people home. And it's all, it's all according to his plans and all according to his will. He, he closes wombs and he opens wombs. He, he's ultimately in charge of that. Um, you know, I, he, he's ultimately, I think, in charge of um, bringing, bringing marriages together as well. Like he ordains events and, and he works on hearts and, and he creates scenarios where people long and, and want to be with each other. Right? Like there's good gifts. There's good gifts that he gives to us. Um, and we get, to, we get to enjoy those gifts. And, and there's responsibility in that, right? Like there's responsibility for singles to, to pursue and respond to each other. You know, and, and, and just a word to our singles, like we've got, as elders, we talk about this a lot. Like we've got a lot of godly women in this church that are single. And we've got a lot of godly men in this church that are single. And um, we've done some marriages when we've started this church up to this point. And um, as elders, we, we long to do more marriages within this church. So just a message to our singles that your spouse will not fulfill you, but your spouse can be a great gift. And there's good gifts that have yet to be opened in this room that are available. So um, feel free to move on that as, as the Spirit leads you, right? And when we long for more children to be born into this church, and so the more couples that come together, there's more children that spring up, and, and more glory to God as these children learn to praise Him and worship Him, right? These are good gifts, good gifts, and God wants to give those gifts to us, and He wants to dispense those blessings to us, and we get to receive those gifts and enjoy those gifts, as you read through this text, Leah seems to regularly acknowledge the source of her fertility being God. She kind of draws attention to that, it seems like. Even the mandrake situation in this text points to God being the, fer- the fertile God, the, the, the fertile source, right? Because the one who ends up with the mandrakes, Rachel, spends probably another three years without a child. Leah gets rid of the mandrakes, the supposed love potion, the fertility drug, and she starts having kids again. I think God intentionally shows us that I'm the one that gives the kids, not, the, not this weird fruit that you found, that your four-year-old found digging around in the, the ditch. Like, um, it's me. Like, it's me that gives the babies. Um, and I think that situation just testifies once again that God is the provider um, in this story. Some implications that I want to draw from this section. Again, if you're listening with us, we, we, we read through the text. It's a lot of text to draw upon. So I'm just trying to draw out points from this chapter implications for us. Um, and the first one has three heads to it, so I labeled all three of them one. Um, and you don't have to write down all three because not all three apply to everybody. Um, as husbands, so talking to our, our males here that are married, as husbands, we must recognize the complex needs of the women entrusted to us and point them to Christ as the ultimate satisfier. I think Jacob fails, and I think he fails in his response to Rachel his, his, um, his, his harshness, because it says he's angry with her, so he responds out of anger. You know, she, she's confessing, I want a baby more than anything. And he says, you know, she's begging him, like, give me a baby. You're giving Leah babies, give me a baby. And, and he says, I'm not in charge of this. Like, God's in charge of this. And you're like, 
you know, that's good theology. Like most of our men are probably thinking, yeah, that's right. Like God is in charge of this. And, and our women are like, I don't need theology right now, right? Like I don't need your, your, your textbook theological answer to my problem. Um, as, as husbands, I think we have to recognize the complex needs of the women entrusted to us and point them to Christ as the ultimate satisfier. I think as husbands, we're tasked with the responsibility of, of, of shepherding our wife and determining when she's putting too much satisfaction in us and it's moved beyond Christ. If we start to perceive, perceive that our wife is drinking from a well that cannot satisfy her, we've got to point her back to Christ, right? If we are... Um, if we are leading a woman, if we are the husband of a woman who is craving children and it's moved to an unhealthy standpoint, where now it's, it's less about having children and more about pushing through this social barrier of not having kids, we've got to point them back to Christ. That's our job as husbands. It's our job as a, as a tool of sanctification in that woman's life to help push her to Christ. As wives, we must recognize uh, that our complex, and that's, this is not me talking as a wife, obviously, but as wives, you must recognize that your complex needs can only be satisfied by Christ rather than an imperfect husband. Because you may be in a situation where you get the theological answer more than the sensitive answer, right? And so you don't get to play the, the card of, well, my husband doesn't shepherd me to love Christ more than him or, or to love him more than my children. So until he starts, I'm going to just continue to feed my, my fleshly desires and put my hope and trust in my kids and my my husband. No, like Rachel had a responsibility to dismiss the harsh response and reevaluate things in light of Yahweh and his provision. As wives, we must recognize, or you must recognize that your complex needs can only be satisfied by Christ, right? Because here's what you've got here in this situation. You've got Leah who has a fertile physical relationship with her husband that leads to a big family, but that's not enough for her. Right, like Jacob may be sitting back saying, I'm taking care of Leah, right? Like we have a physical relationship. She's got kids. I'm doing my husband duties with her. It's not enough for her, right? Like she's a complex being and she's got a lot of other needs besides that. Rachel, Rachel's got the special love. She's got the, the uh, intentional affection of her husband. This extends beyond just a physical relationship, right? Like you know, kind of speculating here, like if anybody's going out on dates, it's Rachel and Jacob, right? If anybody's cuddling on the couch, it's Rachel and Jacob, right? Like this is the special love. No, we don't have kids. I've got those with Leah. But like you get the special me. Like you get the, the loving me, the, the caring me. It's not enough for Rachel, right? Like doesn't satisfy her. Complex needs, complex needs, all kinds of love languages coming out in this, you know, like Hey, hey you, you can't just target one area of me and think that you've met my needs. Like a lot of complex stuff here that really only Christ can meet. There's no husband, there's no spouse, there's no wife that can meet all these complex needs that males have as well. Like we've got, we're complex too, right? Like we've got other needs. Um, as married couples and parents, we must be mindful of those unmet desires in the lives of others, right? Jacob's got to be mindful that Rachel's hurting because she doesn't have kids, that's in the setting of polygamy. So let's step out of that setting and set up in the setting of our church. All right, like Adam and Jen, me and Lauren, Tyson and Sarah, we all got married within the course of a year and a half, two years, I think. And then over the course of a year, I think I did three weddings within this church. We've got 
several, we, have, we have multiple couples that have been married five years or less. It would be irresponsible of us to think that our couples, specifically our women, our wives, are more mature than these women that are part of God's ordained plan to think that there's not struggles about wanting children and not having children and watching other people have children. And we need to be mindful as a church that there's fleshly possibilities that would spring up, envious responses, and we need to help fight against that. Right? We need to help fight against that. We also should be mindful that there was a lot of single people that got married at one time in our church, and that left a lot of other people still single in our church. There were young single people that got married and older single people that remained unmarried. And it would be irresponsible for us to think that that might not be hard for some of these people. It might be hard to watch other people get married. It might be hard to watch other people have children when those are desires that you have. And maybe they're not even unhealthy desires. Maybe they're in check and they're in their right place, but it's still hard and, and it hurts and it's difficult not to be envious. And I think as married couples and as parents, we can work together to encourage each other by just simply being mindful that when people get married and people have kids, it might be hard on other people that are longing to be married and nobody's pursuing them right now. Or they're doing everything they know to do to have kids and it's just not happening right now. We'd be mindful of that and encourage and help each other and constantly point people to Christ as the ultimate satisfier of those needs. Secondly, we must recognize God's sovereign control over life's events without losing sight of how our sin might be contributing to how he orders those events. What do I mean by that? Well, if we go back to the text here, and we are going to have to start flying. Wow. Um, When Rachel saw, verse 1, when Rachel saw she bore children, Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? Good theology, right? Who's in charge of the womb? God is. God shut your womb, Rachel, not me. But you go back to 29. Why is her womb shut? When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Like, this is at least partly due to the fact that Jacob's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? So we can, we can champion the cause and say, God is in control. God orders events. God's doing what he wants to do. My circumstances are based on God's will, and the answer is yes, yes, yes. But let's not mistakenly think that we may not be contributing to why he's ordering the events the way that he is, right? God shutting that womb up? Yeah. Rachel, you can't have kids because God's not letting you have kids. Well, why not? Well, because your husband's not doing what he's supposed to towards Leah, right? Like he's not treating her as the wife that she is to him. And so God's favoring her right now and Rachel is barren because of it. As Christians, we should recognize God's sovereign. He's in control, but not lose sight of the fact that our sin may be contributing to how he orders those events. Number three, we must faithfully rejoice and weep with others as they experience success and failures avoiding any tendency to walk in envy and strife by learning contentment in whatever state we find ourselves in. That's a great summary sentence. We could have subbed that in. We must faithfully rejoice and weep with others as they experience success and failures, avoiding any tendency to walk in envy and strife by learning contentment in whatever state we find ourselves in. Romans twelve fifteen. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony 
with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Being mindful of what other people are going through. Uh, Galatians 5, 25 through 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Isn't that exactly what Rachel and Leah are doing? They provoke one another. I think they're naming their kids in ways to provoke each other. Like, look what God's doing for me over here, what he's not doing for you over there. They provoke each other. They envy one another. It's not supposed to play itself out in the life of a Christian. But isn't it true that more often than not, when we're, when we're walking not in the Spirit, walking in our flesh, we're, we're tempted to, to rejoice when others weep and to weep when others rejoice, right? Like we, we want at times to see other people fail because it makes us feel better if we're in the midst of failing in something. Like, I don't want to see you succeed. I'm not succeeding. And we want to succeed. We want to be the ones celebrating, right? And so we, we, we weep when other people are, are celebrating and rejoicing, and we rejoice when other people are, are struggling at times. That's, that's walking in the flesh. That's being envious and, and provoking one another. And instead, we should weep with those that weep. We should be concerned and be mindful of when someone else might be hurting. And we should celebrate when other people celebrate. It's, and I think it's probably easier to weep when other people weep, and it's far more difficult at times to celebrate when other people are celebrating because it means taking attention off of ourselves and putting it on somebody else, and, and we long to be recognized, and we long to be appreciated, and, and, and Leah's longing to have all the children, and Rachel's longing to have all the children, and it's hard to celebrate the pregnancy of the other. And again, that flushes itself out right here in our church, right? It can be hard to celebrate the, 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 the wedding of someone else when you long to be, to be wed. It can be hard to celebrate the birth of another person's child when you long to have children yourself. And we have to be reminded that God dispenses his goodness in different degrees and different forms to different people. And we have to be okay with that and content with that. We can't downplay what God's doing in our life and, and puff up what he's doing in somebody else's. And it always looks better on that side than what we've got. And that's what Leah and Rachel are wrestling with. Number four, we must consistent, uh, consistently with consistency, turn to God in prayer to have our desires properly met. We must consistently, sorry about the typo, turn to God in prayer to have our desires properly met. In this chapter, when these people decide to pray, it seems like that's when God decides to act and to move. What you don't have is any reference about Jacob praying about this, right? Remember Abraham prayed for uh, Sarah's barrenness. Remember Isaac, we highlighted the fact that he prayed for 20 years for his wife to have a kid. What's Jacob's response? It's not my fault you're not having kids. That's God. Like that's what my theology book says. It's, it's all God. God's in control of this. You don't see him taking his wife lovingly and saying, let's pray about this. Like, I understand this is hard for you that Leah's having kids and you're not. And I understand you want kids and let's pray about this. And let's, let's be reminded that God is good to us and, and God's allowed us to be married. You don't have any of that type of gentle shepherding. Let's consistently turn to God in prayer to have our desires properly met. All right, let's fly through this last part. Or for our kids, what does this all mean for you? I should celebrate when God blesses others and be concerned when others are hurting. I should celebrate when God blesses others and be concerned 
when others are hurting. And for our kids, if you can learn this lesson earlier rather than later, you're going to be far better than most of us in this room (laughs) because this is a lesson that we're still learning as adults. It's hard to celebrate when others are celebrating and being blessed by God because our natural tendency is to be jealous and envious and to want exactly what they have. I should celebrate when God blesses others and be concerned with others are hurting. All right, let's fly through this last part because it's, it's really more confusing anyway, so it'll let me off the hook on trying to explain it to you. Trusting God with our material prosperity. Trusting God with our material prosperity. So Rachel gets pregnant with Joseph. Jacob's like, all right, let's head out of here. Um, Laban's a jerk of a boss, and he keeps changing my wages, and he doesn't appreciate me, and I've got land promised to me back home. Let's get out of here, and wants to, wants to head out, right? Um, first point, man is responsible for seeing God as the source of all his gain. Both Jacob and Laban attribute the overall success of their business to God. That becomes real apparent when Jacob tries to leave and Laban's like, whoa, 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 not so fast. Um, you're good for business. Um, says uh, Jacob says, give me my wives, my children. Verse 27, but Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob or Laban says, I don't want you to go anywhere. Like I, I've learned, and, and what's crazy is that he's learned from divination. Um, which is like some crazy uh, occultic, spiritual, um, weird, satanic stuff potentially. You know, like this is the, the fortune tellers, this is the, uh, the card readings, this is all that kind of stuff. Remember, he comes from a, a, a moon-worshiping background, and so he's, he is exploring the supernatural from the wrong side of things, and I'd love to think that in, in doing that and in talking with potential demonic forces— they're cluing him into, eh, that's Yahweh. Like, that's the real God over there doing that. Like, we can't help you. Like, we submit to him. Because Laban says, hey, through occultic stuff, through divination, I've learned that God is the one that's in charge of this, and God's the one blessing you. And he says, I don't want you to go anywhere. And Jacob recognizes the same thing. He says, said to him, you yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it's increased abundantly. And what? The Lord has blessed you wherever I've turned. We're responsible for seeing God as the source of all of our gain. Both Jacob and Laban attribute that overall success to God. This is a fulfillment of the Bethel promise. Remember, the latter, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. The same words used there are the same words used here. Jacob is recognizing, you're taking care of me. You're blessing others around me. Remember, I'm going to be a blessing to all nations. Starting to fulfill that promise. Um, Man is responsible for working hard and trusting God with further gain. Man is responsible for working hard and trusting God with further gain. What's unfortunate here is that rather than trusting God for his provision, Laban works hard to keep Jacob around in hopes of ensuring future blessing, right? Like Laban doesn't say, okay, Jacob, I realize you got to go, but introduce me to your God. Like I want to experience his blessing. I want your God, right? He says, Jacob, you can't go anywhere, You've got a God that takes care of you, and I want you to stay so that he'll keep taking care of me. Like, he's not interested in Jacob's God. He's not interested in submitting to Jacob's God. Just wants the gifts. Just wants the gifts that Jacob's God gives out. Jacob responds in faith, though. Um, Rather than trusting in Laban's provision, Jacob trusts God for future provision, right? Jacob says, don't give me anything. I don't trust you anyways. I'm going to trust that God's going to give to me. And basically, Jacob constructs this deal where it's rare for these animals to have spots and stripes. Um, it, it's rare for them to be 
um, speckled, right? Like that's what these animals are described as. He says, you can have all the normal animals. I'll have all the weird animals, the ones that have spots and stripes and specks and black lambs. Like it just seems creepy, right? Like we always picture like white, pure snow white lambs. And he's like, give me the black ones. Like give me the weird ones. He's like, that's how I'll build my fortune. And, and Laban's like, we're both really good schemers, and this really seems like I'm winning this without even having to jump in and scheme here. He's like, you're, you're setting up a bad deal. And Jacob's like, no, really, I don't trust you, and so you're not going to give me anything. Normally, he could have demanded like 10, 20% of the flock and then a percentage of the wool. He's like, no, just give me the weird animals. And there were already weird animals, and so he should have started off with like a, a surplus, like a starting point, but Laban is creepy and a schemer and a jerk, and he says, sons, let's get rid of all the ones that are currently speckled and spotted and let's take those away. And he starts with nothing. He removes that, what he thinks removes the genetic code. And so now all you've got is normal ones breeding together. Laban's thinking, you're not going to get anything and you're going to stay here forever working for me because you're going to be waiting for spots and specks and stripes and it's not going to ever happen. And God provides, and this is a testimony to Jacob's faith because he sets himself up basically to where God has to come through for him to get anything and God works in the midst of Jacob's breeding plans. Um, you, you have Jacob, he starts breeding the strong together and the weak together, and then he starts taking these sticks and like ripping stripes in them and putting them in front. And supposedly there's this thing called prenatal impression where if I'm looking at stripes, I'm going to have stripes. And know, it's just weird. And most of the commentators didn't have a clue what to do with this. Um, there's basically three approaches, either... God said, that's silly, but I'm still going to give you some spot and specks and black lambs, but it's not due to those striped sticks. Or Jacob knew more about science than we do, and he realized that if you do this, like it produces this, but there's no real scientific evidence that doing this would work. Some commentators believe, because if you go to 31, Jacob says, I had a dream and God talked to me about this that this may have simply been an expression of faith, much like in the, in the wilderness where children of Israel look to the bronze serpent and God heals them, it was a, and it was an expression of faith, that perhaps this is Jacob expressing faith that God will give me spots and specks, um, and this is my outward confession that I believe he'll do so. I'm not really sure what to do with these sticks. Um, I know in 31, it's all about God giving him the animals and not the sticks, so that's where I'm going to kind of hang my hat on right here is that he does some breeding stuff here and it results in him getting a big flock, but ultimately God is seen as the source of that, okay? Implications for us. We work hard because it is right even when we are employed by ungodly bosses. Jacob is a testimony to that in this passage. He was clearly faithful with his job responsibilities even though he worked for a crummy boss. Some of us work for crummy bosses and you're called to work hard and you're called to do what's right, despite your crummy boss. We work hard because it's right, when we are, even when we're employed by ungodly bosses. Number two, at a minimum, others should recognize the provision of God in our life. Even if they don't desire our God, this is kind of the same thing that Isaac experienced with the Philistine, Philistine yeah, those kings, Philistine kings, is that right? I think that was right. Remember, they, they were basically like, hey, we see God's the one blessing you. Um, we don't really want your God, but we're just going to acknowledge that he is. So at a minimum, people should be seeing and attributing our success to our God, even if they don't want to be a part of the family of God. 
And then number three, by remembering the blessings of God in the past, we can better trust him with our continued provision moving forward. I think that's why Jacob's even willing to make this deal is he's already seen God be faithful to him. So he trusts that God will be faithful to provide for him. He doesn't have to manipulate or scheme. Did I miss any kids' notes in this part? Am I missing anything? Are y'all up to speed? I feel like I missed a slide. We good? I think I got a kid one right here. Everything that my family has comes from God. Did I get it? Did I get it up to date? Everything that my family has comes from God. So for all of our kids, sorry to disappoint you, but your dad may work hard, but um, it's not because of your daddy or your mommy. Um, it's because of God that you have everything that you possess as a family. Application for us. We must see and trust that God is our ultimate source of provision. We talked about that in our summary sentence. God is the one that dispenses blessings. We must see and trust that he's our ultimate source of provision, not us, not superstitions, not any. And that's not to dismiss that there are certainly medical things that can be done to increase fertility, right? And I'm not saying that those things ought not to be done at times as long as they are done with the mindset that God is still ultimately the provider, right? Like we don't give, uh, we don't praise the doctor. We don't praise the procedure. We don't praise the drugs or the, the anything that we do as being the source of why we have a child. God is always the source of everything that is provided to us. For kids, God gives us everything that we have. Secondly, we must faithfully praise God for his specific provision in our life rather than emphasizing areas we lack provision. For our kids, I should focus on what I have versus what I don't have. Some of our adults, if you want to just write it down in that form, you're welcome to. All right, we praise God for what he does give to us versus trying to determine what he hasn't given to us. For our singles, we praise God that he's giving us a longer period of time to maximize work for the kingdom, right? Like that's the benefit of singleness. Don't view it as a a handicap. We praise God for what he's doing in our life. We praise God for those that are married without kids, that we have extended time to, to strengthen and deepen the relationship between the husband and the wife, right? versus focusing on what he hasn't given us yet. Right, we praise God, we emphasize the provision that is there versus that tendency to want to look to others and say, why don't I have that? Why don't I have that? So going back to our summary sentence, Christians must prepare to trust God. Don't wait, prepare to trust God rather than respond with envy and strife when he chooses to dispense his blessings in various degrees and forms to us and those around us. Because here's the, here's the news flash is that God's going to continue to take care of everybody in this room and he's gonna continue to bless everybody in this room. Those of us that are believers because we're adopted into his family and he's going to continue to do it in different degrees and forms. And we can do all of ourselves a favor by preparing to trust him and be content with how he chooses to do it specifically to us. And we can also help others by being mindful of how it might be difficult for them when other people are celebrating and being blessed and when they're not in that way. And we can help lift them up and encourage them. And that doesn't mean being overly um, forward about it. Like, hey, saw somebody who got married the other day. I'm sure that's tough for you, right? Like it's not draw. it's not like, no, I hadn't thought about that, but now I am a little depressed. You know, like it's not trying to create something that may not be there. It's just being mindful. You know, it's as simple as saying, hey, let's, let's call so-and-so up and see if they want to hang out you know, and just, and just be there and, and allow them to open up if they need to. But just, you know, just being mindful. Hey, that may be hard for them right now. 
and, and let me do whatever I can to, to be a, a supporting hand and to be a, a, a true member of the body of Christ and uh, to not provoke and to not be envious, but to instead create unity um, as much as possible. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this chapter. I'm thankful for um, just the opportunity to reflect upon it. Um, God, I'm thankful that, um, at least for me, um, this was um, new, new things to reflect upon and to meditate upon. Um, God, I'm thankful for the truths that are spoken in this chapter that are still relevant today, despite the fact that the family structure was different in, in, this, in this setting, that the, the needs and the, the struggles and the sin is, is still very much the same today. Um, and God, we're thankful that the answer is still very much the same today. Uh, that Christ is the, the ultimate satisfier of all of our needs and that you're ultimately the provider of all of our needs. God, I pray that our people here would recognize that every human relationship fails to do what Christ does for us. God, I'm thankful that you offer a well that uh, leaves our thirst quenched. Um, God, I pray that we would cling to that, that we would see that more and more every day, that you would help squash the idols that we've constructed in our life, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a, a job, whether it's a house, whether it's a, um, a child. God, that you'd help tear those idols down in our life, um, and that we would return to that will. We would return to, to Christ as being our ultimate satisfier. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to be content and thankful for how you bless us. I pray that we would celebrate the blessings that you give to others um, that ultimately it would draw our attention to you. Help us to see that when we're envious of others, it detracts from your glory. Um, that when you bless others, it gives us a chance to worship you f- uh, in a more full way. Because um, ultimately you're the giver of gifts and we should rejoice anytime gifts are given because we certainly don't deserve them. We thank you for Jesus and all he does for us. Um, we thank you that he ultimately wipes our sin away um, and that, he, uh, that you love us. You love us. And we don't have to worry about you ever stopping loving us because you loved us when we were sinful. We thank you that we never have to worry about being separated from you. There's no height nor depth nor, nor any power in this universe that can separate us from your love. Praise you and thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.